0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, I invite you to turn once again to the book of Amos. Last week we uh, were not in the book of Amos because we were addressing directly the tragedy of Dallas with the police officers um, last week. I want to encourage you to continue to pray for those families. We have members of our church who have uh, relationships with uh, some of those officers and their families. In fact, we have a man in our church who's a chaplain with the Dallas Police Department that was involved in four of the five funerals this week. And so you pray uh, for those families, please. Amos chapter 4, I'm going to read all 13 verses of this chapter. Amos is writing to the nation of Israel. Remember, this is a sermon that he's preaching. And this is what he says in his sermon. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through the breaches in the walls, each one straight before her and you will be cast to harmon, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress in Gilgal, multiply transgression, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from which is heaven and proclaimed freewill offerings, make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city or another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but you would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword, along with captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise in your nostrils. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel." For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts. He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Prepare to meet your God. Now, when you hear that sentence, do you get the mental picture of a wild-eyed lunatic Yelling on a street corner, prepare to meet your God. People crossing to the other side of the street to avoid eye contact. Well, these words are not the incoherent ramblings of an emotionally unstable person. Rather, they are the very words of God spoken through his prophet Amos to his chosen people, Israel. And this commandment to prepare to meet their God only comes after a series of accusations of sin and stubbornness That he's bringing against them through Amos. Remember what the accusations were. They had perverted justice. They were selling the poor for the cost of a pair of sandals. They were wantonly materialistic. Even their worship was hypocritical, mixed with pagan worship. There was idolatry, which led to sexual immorality. But here in chapter four, Amos hones in on the wealthy women of Israel. Here in verse one, he. They're living lives of excess. They're eating and drinking and laying around and growing sleek and fat and calling on their husbands to make more money by oppressing the poor so they can do it all over again the next day. And Amos does something I don't recommend to any young preacher. He called the women cows. (laughs) He compared them to these prize animals that used to roam the hills of a region called Bashan. Known for its fertile pastures and prized cattle. And he compares them to livestock. And they just take of the Lord's blessing, take of the Lord's blessing. Never look up to see where their blessings come from. Never bow their knee. And they give no thought to spiritual matters. Everything is physical. I would love to preach a sermon on the cows of Bashan this morning. But uh, I'm not going to. I'm going to skip down to verse 6. And focus upon the last half of chapter four. One of Israel's great sins, as you recall from previous chapters, was their failure to recognize God as the source of their blessings. Look at chapter 2, verse 9, for example. God says to them, Yet it was I, God says, who destroyed the Amorite. That is, when they came into the promised land. He defeated their enemies before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Verse 10, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you in the wilderness 40 years. And so God says you wouldn't even be here to occupy this fertile land were it not for my providence. So they failed to see God's hand in blessing. But on the other side of the equation, Amos is speaking out in chapter four against an equally heinous sin, and that is their failure to see God's hand in calamity. God, many times through their history, had brought disaster upon them to get their attention, to discipline them as a loving father would, and yet, time and again, he had to say, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. In other words, the Jewish people by Amos' time had become practical deists. Now you know it's often been said that America is full of practical atheists. Uh, even today, very few people would admit to be philosophically atheistic. That is, they would say God does not exist. They would say, "Yes, I believe there is a God." Yet most Americans live like there is no God, right? So in fact, they are practical or practicing atheists. But the people of Amos's day were practical deists. Now, a deist is someone who believes that yes, God created the universe but he does not intervene in it. That is, he's like a child who winds up a toy, sets it down and walks away with no interest in what happens next. That's not the God of the Bible. And if anyone ought to know better, it was his chosen people, the Jews. After all, they had the Torah, the first five books of the law which taught them that God not only created the world and everything in it, but that he sustains his creation and he superintends his creation. Yet most of them were living as if he does not. And so they took his blessings in the good times and never acknowledged his benevolence and they endured suffering in the bad times and never saw these disasters as God's disciplining hand. Well, let's walk through these verses this morning and look at some of the areas in which God's hand was in fact in calamity. Verse six, he says, but I gave you cleanness of teeth in your cities. Now, in our modern world that is obsessed with oral hygiene, if God gave us clean teeth in our cities, we'd think that was a blessing, right? But that's not what he's saying. You have to read the rest of verse 6. He says, and lack of bread in your places. The point is there was no food to make your teeth stained or in need of brushing. There was nothing to eat. In other words, God brought famine at times in the history of Israel. And he did so to call them away from idolatry, to call them back into himself. He didn't do it because he didn't love them. He did it because he did love them. Not only did he bring famine, there were times when he brought drought. Verse seven, furthermore, I withheld the rain from you. And while there were still three months until harvest, then I would send rain on one city and on another city, I would not send rain. But even when God disciplined Did you notice he's gentle and merciful? It wasn't universal in the drought. He gave some parts of the land so that those who didn't have any could at least survive. And he would send it in the early part of the summer so that there was still time to recover in the second part before the harvest. And isn't that just like God? Even in times of discipline, he's merciful and kind and long-suffering. But there were times where he really had to get their intention. And you remember that their economy was tied totally to agriculture and so he would send pestilence upon their crops. Verse nine, he says, I smote you with scorching wind and mildew. That, that's not just something that would cause you discomfort. That, that was on the crops. Those were um, diseases of the crop, this mildew and, and plague. And then he says, I sent the caterpillar devouring your gardens and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees. He sent pest pest. And yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. That's the whole point. God didn't send these plagues simply to punish the people, but rather to draw them back into himself. Remember what we saw last week from Revelation. Jesus says, those I love, I discipline, right? And this is God's discipline upon the nation of Israel. And even that didn't draw them back. And so what did he send? He sent violence. Verse 10, I sent a plague upon you after the men of Egypt. I slew the young men by the sword along with your captured horses. Every young Jewish person had heard the stories of Egyptian slavery. And if there's one person in history whose name is synonymous with stubbornness and hard-heartedness and having a stiff, stiff neck, it's Pharaoh, right? Remember God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go and he wouldn't. So the Lord sent a plague And he still wouldn't, so he sent another plague, and he still wouldn't, and he sent another plague. And Ten times he sent these plagues until the Lord finally sent the death angel to take of the firstborn of every household, including Pharaoh's household. And finally, he said, get out of here, and he sent the people away, but even then he pursued them with an army that God had to swallow up in the Red Sea. And so he's comparing the people to the stubbornness of Egypt. God sent plague after plague, and yet they said they would not return. And so finally he sends overthrow, verse 11. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know how Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown suddenly and violently. You were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. You're fortunate even to exist, he says. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. And so what is the Lord to do? He sends these warning shots across their bow through their history. He sends the prophets to say, This is the Lord doing this, return to him. They have the revealed word of God in Scripture, and yet they stubbornly, willfully refuse to repent. What is God to do? Well, here's what he says he's going to do. Verse 12 Therefore, as a result of your stubbornness, I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. The final time and swift act of judgment is imminent. God often called His chosen people a stiff necked and a stubborn people. They, they were called that because they were like an animal who's pulling a cart or a plow. And they would balk. They would just stop in the middle of the street or in the middle of the row. And, and so the farmer would have a, a sharp stick, or he would take a whip and hit him along the flanks. And, Usually that would do the trick as long as the animal was sensitive and his skin was not callous. But over time, after doing that so long, the skin would become thick and scarred and he could no longer feel the poke of the stick or the scar. And so he was called stiff-necked. And the people of Jesus' day were stiff-necked people. And the people of the first century church that they had to deal with were surrounded by stiff-necked people. In fact, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, when he was accused of heresy and brought outside of the city, was given the chance to speak, and he said in Acts 7, 51, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Now that's 800 years after Amos spoke, and yet he says you're doing just like the people of Amos day." The prophet has come, you will not hear it, you will not repent, you will not turn back to God. And at this point in their history, God had had enough. Judgment is imminent. He's about to remove his hand of protection and let their enemies, the Assyrians, have their way with Israel. But he wanted them to know before he did that he was the one that was doing it. And so he sends his prophet. And look what he says in verse two of chapter four. The Lord has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's gruesome to think about, but in those days when they would have a battle, there would be dead carcasses left the next day and they would literally go out with flesh hooks and they would attach them to these corpses and drag them away and dispose of the bodies. And the prisoners of war many times literally had a fish hook strung in their jaw and they were strung together and paraded back up to Assyria. And that's exactly what would happen and did happen to the Israelites. And God predicted it and he said, I want you to know I did it. And before he does it, he gives them a somber commandment. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. What a tragic thought. When God first created man, Adam and Eve, he would come and visit with them in the cool of the morning. They're in that perfect environment in the garden and They would have fellowship as people have fellowship today. And yet when sin enters the world, that fellowship is broken. And now God says, when you prepare to meet me, don't prepare for fellowship and intimacy, prepare for judgment. Remember that. Well, that leads us to our second point, the authority. Why does God have the authority to make such announcements and commands of his people? It's been noted that God here does not describe the judgment. He only guarantees it. What gives him the authority? He says he swears by his own holiness. Well, a number of reasons God has this authority. Number one, he created the world and all that are in it, right? He says here that he makes the, verse 13, the wind, the mountains. And if God chooses to use the wind and of nature to bring discipline to his people through storms, he can do that, right? was reminded of that this week going up to Arkansas. We got in the middle of the worst storm I've ever seen and trees were falling on the road all around me. And I became concerned and I was reminded of how instantly the Lord can take our lives. And he says, the Lord has done it. Secondly, he has the authority because he reveals his will to man. God doesn't make a secret of what he's about to do. He sends prophet and he, he sends his word. In fact, the nation of Israel was doubly blessed that they had not only natural revelation, but special revelation. So they were totally without excuse, but it's not just them. In The book of Romans, Paul says, all men are without excuse because we can see through nature. That is what has been made. God's power and creativity on display. But beyond that, he gives us special revelation, his word and The greatest manifestation, of course, His Son. Israel had all those blessings, yet they would not return. God has authority not only because He created the world and He reveals His will to man through creation and through special revelation, but He also superintends His creation. That is, He doesn't dismiss it and walk away. He says, He treadeth upon the high places of the earth. He's still here with us. He's omniscient. He knows every thought we think. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. And so now now the question is, I saw many of you nodding your head when I said God's omniscient and omnipotent. The question is, has that omniscient, omnipotent God changed in the nearly 3,000 years since Amos spoke these words? Do this. (laughs) He has not because he would cease to be the God of the Bible if he did. Because one of the terms we use to describe the God of the Bible is He's immutable. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that would mean that He has the same standard of holiness today as He had 3,000 years ago. What is true about Him then is true about Him today. And that leads to our application. I was tempted to title the message this morning, How to Watch the Evening News. Because I'm like you, I despair of the news these days. You're afraid to turn it on for what tragedy might've happened next and every news cycle, it changes. Attack over here, shootings over here, disaster over here. What would, as Christians, how should we respond to that? Because if we're not careful, because we're constantly exposed to those kinds of reports of floods and droughts and violence And death, if we're not careful, we'll become numb to it, and it will become simply background noise of our lives, and we'll just go on without a second thought. When the truth is, every time there is a disaster in the world and we live to hear about it, it should draw us closer to Jesus. We ought to let that be its purpose. Amos 3.6 says, A calamity occurs in a city. Has not the Lord done it? We need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God over his creation and that no matter what happens in the world, by definition, if God is sovereign, no matter what happens in the world, he is in it. He either allowed it or he caused it. Job knew that and when he had disaster in his life and his wife complained, he told her to stop complaining, shall we not accept can we accept blessings from the Lord and not calamity, he said. Because Job was a lot like Israel at that time. This particular moment in his life, things were going well. His family was growing. His business was growing. His farm was productive. He had friends. And then suddenly all that was taken away. But Job didn't change. The Bible said in all that, he did not curse God or charge him foolishly. His faith was real. and was proven to be real. And a lot of people think it's our job as Christians to defend God's honor, right? Something bad happens in the world. Oh, God didn't have anything to do with that. I I remember a number of years ago, there was a terrible earthquake in the island nation of Haiti. And thousands of people died. And as often happens, the next morning, the news services began to call prominent pastors. And I remember one prominent pastor, who's very well known, whose name you would know, was called and They wanted to quote, where was God in the earthquake? And he felt like he had to defend God's honor. And he said, well, I'll tell you this, God was just as surprised by that earthquake as you were. Now I know he meant well, and I know he was trying to defend God's honor, but that's heresy. God is not surprised or he wouldn't be God about anything. Certainly something as important as an earthquake. Now, we have to be careful at this point. We're not saying God caused people to sin. God didn't make that man shoot those police officers. God didn't tell that man to drive that truck into that crowd in Paris this week. Scripture says in in James that God neither tempts or is tempted. He cannot sin. But he also works all things together for good, doesn't he? God is sovereign and superintends his creation, so we can rightly say no matter what happened, he either allowed it, as he did in the case of Job, or he caused it. And if you think I'm off the reservation with that philosophy, you need to remember the words of Jesus in the New Testament book of Luke. In Luke chapter 13, the people of Jesus' day had catastrophes. They had the same questions your friends have where was God? Why did this happen? And they had to help themselves to sleep at night when they had disasters by thinking those people that died must have deserved it. They must be especially bad sinners or else nothing like that would have happened to them. So a couple of things happened. One is uh, there was uh, violence. Innocent people were killed even in the act of worship. And people asked Jesus, where was God? And then there was a a natural disaster, wind or, or some. Calamity caused a tower to fall over and kill 18 people and crush them to death and they wanna know where was God. And so Jesus answers them, Luke 1. Now on the same occasion, there was some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I want to remind you that Jesus never asked questions for information's sake. He knew that's exactly what they were thinking. These Galileans who were murdered in an act of worship by Pilate soldiers must have been really bad sinners or this would not have happened. He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's Jesus who said that. What he's saying in effect is two things. Number one, do not neglect the Lord's warnings. Every time you pick up a newspaper and you see a terrible headline of disaster and calamity and violence, every time you turn on the television or the radio and the announcer is telling about some new catastrophe where lives were lost, take that as a kindness from the Lord that he's warning you to be ready to meet your creator. The second thing is do that. Prepare to meet your God. Let me ask you individually a very pointed question. Are you prepared to meet your God? If we knew that we were about to meet some dignitary or celebrity, I expect we'd get ready, right? We'd clean the house thoroughly we'd have our children in their best attire we'd have them sitting perfectly still lest they spilled something and we would be ready when that dignitary knocked upon the door and yet the bible warns us time again that when the lord comes he's going to do so suddenly and when people aren't looking for it scripture says that when he comes two will be in the bed sleeping one will be taken one will be left two will be in the field plowing one will be taken One will be left. Two will be at the mill grinding. One will be taken. One will be left. The implication is people just going about their lives. Even though God sent prophets, he sent his word, he sent the apostles, he sent preachers, people just go on with life. In fact, Jesus predicted that when judgment finally comes, people are going to be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, just like it was in the days of Noah, right? Remember the days of Noah, for a 100 years he'd been warning those people to get ready for the rain and they thought he was crazy. And they went on with life and they started businesses and they built houses and they gave their daughters in marriage and they thought it would always be that way and suddenly the rain started falling. But Jesus says that's the way it's gonna be on the day of judgment. People aren't gonna be looking for it, they're just gonna be going on with life. But what about you, are you ready? I have a statement, it's not original with me but I've said it so many times, many of you think it is. Here's what I say at at funerals here, and I think it all the time when I hear about someone dying suddenly. You are going to die, you don't know when, and you better be ready. You are going to die. You don't know when, you better be ready. That, That really is a paraphrase of Hebrews 9.27, and insomuch as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. My predecessor, Dr. Patterson, used to say it a little differently when we'd be called out together to go to the hospital when someone had died suddenly. We would leave the hospital after praying with the family, and we'd drive in silence back home. And before we got home, almost always he would say, Keith, Keith, you you put your shoes on in the morning and you tie the laces, but you don't know who's gonna take your shoes off for you in the evening. That was his way of saying, you're gonna die. You don't know when, and you better be ready. Are you ready? You can be. The Bible says that all of us one day will face our Creator. Not only our Creator, but our Judge. And when you think about the righteous Judge of the universe knows every thought we've ever thought, in addition to every deed we've ever done, and the motive for all of those deeds. That that can be a frightening thought, and it ought to be. But for believers, death doesn't have to be a cause for anxiety and fear because of what Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe and teach here in, in a concept called substitutionary atonement. And that word substitutionary is a good word, right? It means in the place of another. Here's what the Bible teaches is that God saw all of us and he saw the truth about us. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23. Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scripture says John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. That is be ultimately judged. And so what happened in the plan was that Jesus according to Philippians 2 would empty himself of the glories of heaven and Be conceived in the womb of a virgin girl, Mary, and be born as men are born, and for 30 years walk this planet, tempted in every way we are. But then, when the time was right, he fulfilled his mission by going to the cross and literally dying there. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. That's why Jesus died. He was taking the punishment that sinners deserved. And and he died literally. He was placed in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he arose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And, And since Jesus has already taken our punishment for us, we don't have to fear if we put our faith and trust in him. Now, how do you appropriate that salvation? Well, Scripture says it's by faith. Paul says in Ephesians, it's by grace that you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. So how should you watch the evening news if you're lost? We ought to say, Lord, thank you that I lived long enough to hear the evening news because I sin today and every time I sinned and I don't die, it's a manifestation of your mercy. How should Christians watch the evening news? Should we despair and say God's lost control? No, every time we hear of drought, famine, violence, and disaster, and catastrophe. We ought to take that as God's megaphone, Harry Ironside says. He's calling out loudly and clearly, repent, come to me before it's everlasting too late. And he's saying to Christians, I love you, come back to me if you're straight. And for believers, if there's any other thought it ought to bring his Lord, Lord Jesus come quickly, right? Because we don't live as other men as without hope. The Bible says our hope is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That one day at our glorification, either when we die or when Jesus returns, we are going to be away from all of this in a place where there is no sickness, no dying, No death. Are you ready for that day? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, call out to him. Confess to him that you're a sinner. You've fallen short of his glory, that you want his forgiveness and his grace. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and you're a Christian, don't grow cold and callous and stiff-necked to the discipline of the Lord. Come back to him today and begin to walk with him anew. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And you are gentle and kind and long-suffering and merciful. And yet, as with the nation of Israel, Lord, there comes a time where the window of grace is shut and it's too late. And you send judgment. And Father, we're reminded that that's true um, ultimately with Jesus and his second coming. Right now, Lord, as long as it is called today, there's an open invitation. Whoever will can be saved and will be saved. Lord, there will come a day when the trumpet sounds and it's everlasting too late. And I pray if there's even one person in the sound of my voice who does not have assurance of salvation, who has been trusting in their own goodness or maybe they've even become a practical atheist or deist, living as if God doesn't care. Lord, I pray by your spirit, you'd convict them today, draw them to yourself, that they would be saved. Lord, I pray you'd do it for your own namesake and for your own glory. And we thank you in advance, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, Visit us online at fbckeller.org.